Let's get into the word of God. Deuteronomy chapter five, verses six through nine is where we will camp out today. Uh, John Ortberg had a couple in his church that had been married 60, 65 years, a long period of time, and he talked one day about how they first met. They met on a blind date, which is really, really unique, really uh, unusual for a, a blind date to turn out this well, but it didn't start out great. So here's what happened. So there's a knock on the door. Remember, this is 60, 70 years ago. Knock on the door, the young lady goes, opens it, and she's immediately puzzled by the guy standing there because she was told by the mutual friend that this guy who was coming to pick her up was very handsome, well-dressed, and fit. Not that these things matter that much to her, but she looked out and saw a guy who was very sloppy, who wasn't handsome at all, and who was very, very overweight. Never exercised, you could tell, and she thought, maybe, maybe this is the wrong guy. And right as she was trying to puzzle all this out, Another guy walked around from behind the big guy and, and introduced himself and said, uh, yeah, I'm here to pick you up. Let's go out, shook hands with the big guy. The big guy left and the two of them went on on their date. Got along great, hit it off. And on the way home, as they're just talking and, and, and enjoying one another, she says to him, okay, here's what I need to understand though. Why did that big guy show up? Why, why was he there? Why did you not come alone? And he said, well, you know, I, I hate to tell you. She says, I've got to know. And he says, well, okay. So the truth is my, my friend, your friend, our mutual friend said that you were really, really beautiful. And I didn't really believe him. I didn't know if I could trust him uh, because, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder and I'm pretty picky. So, you know, I've got this other guy that is much bigger than me. And I just thought, well, I can hide behind him. And I can get a good look at you for myself. And if I don't like what I see, I'll just tap him on the shoulder and I'll walk off and he, he would be your date for the evening. Now guys, I do not recommend that as a dating strategy. Never tried it myself. I don't think that's a good idea. But the thought behind it will come in handy in something more important than dating. Let me explain what I mean. So we live in a, in a culture today that's much less religious than it used to be, and yet, even so, everybody has an opinion about what God is like. Anybody you talk to tries to describe to you, okay, this is what I believe about God, and you hear wildly divergent things. You hear it from your parents as you're growing up. You, there's a legacy of faith that's passed down to you, some beliefs about God that you're told. Uh, you hear it from your friends. You hear it from popular culture. You hear it from both sides of the political aisle. They, the Jesus that's preached by the, the red side is very different than the Jesus that's preached by the blue side. I think you can agree. And, and then there are all the different religions that you hear. We, we live in a very diverse, religiously diverse society, you probably have friends who are of non-Christian faiths. The, the God they present is very different than the God you and I hear about in church. And even in Christian churches, you could go to church somewhere in this city or any major American city today, and you'd probably hear about a God who is like a benevolent grandpa or even a cosmic butler. His job is just to give you what you want. If you just have the right kind of faith, you just believe the right kind of way, you'll get everything you want. And then you'd turn around, go to another church the next Sunday in that same city and hear about a God who's like a vengeful warlord. And if you cross him in any way, disrespect him in the slightest instance, and he will hunt you down and he will punish you and he will laugh while you burn. I mean, you can hear about all these things, but what is really true? I encourage you to have the attitude of that young man and say, I'm not gonna trust what someone else says. I wanna see for myself. And the good news is you can do that through the word of God. By the way, don't just trust what I say. I'm including myself in this. 
I'm glad you come on Sundays. I'm glad you listen. You're very polite. You even sometimes come and say, good job. But don't just accept my word for it. Study God's word for yourself. Because God has loved us enough to tell us about himself in this book that we call the Bible. And over the next seven weeks, we're gonna look at some of the attributes of God that aren't often spelled out or defined. There is only one God. And he is who he is. And so we're gonna find out what he is really like. Today we're gonna talk about God's exclusivity and that is the part of his nature that says, I must be number one in your life. What is that about? Why does that exist? Uh, 20 years ago, 20 years ago on a Sunday morning, an Easter Sunday morning, I got my Sunday newspaper and inside was the little parade magazine. I don't take the paper anymore, but I assume they still do this. Little parade magazine uh, had, a, had an article, Easter Sunday morning, that said, that interviewed six different religious leaders from all faiths and asked them the question, what is the biggest problem in the religious world today? And their answer, five out of the six, said some version of the following. The biggest problem in religion today is exclusivity. It's when people say, my religion's the only religion, my way's the only way, and everybody else is wrong. Now, that was 20 years ago. And that, that idea that all paths lead to the same direction is even more prevalent today than it was 20 years ago. Just as proof of that statement, I read this when I was getting ready for this message. Probe Ministries, I don't know anything about that organization, but they interviewed born-again Christians. Would you consider yourself a born-again Christian? I know I would, many of you probably would. They asked them the question, do you agree with the following statement? There are multiple ways to heaven. And 70% said yes. 70% of born-again Christians said yes. There are multiple ways to heaven. There's this little parable that, that people tell in our culture today. And it's called the parable of the blind man and the elephant. Let me describe it for you. Some of you know this. So there's these five blind men and there's an elephant. They're in a room together. I guess that would make it the elephant in the room, but that's not the point of the parable. So uh, the five blind men walk up. They're trying to identify this object or this creature. And the first one touches its tail and says, well, it's, it's a broom. And the second one touches its side and said, you're crazy because it's a wall. And the third touches its ear and says, no, 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 it's a fan. And the fourth says, you guys are all nuts because it's touching its tusk. And he says, it's clearly a spear. And the fifth one touches its trunk and says, no, no, you're all wrong. It's, it's more like a hose. And the point of the parable is that like those blind men, all religions are seeing just one piece of the puzzle when the truth is they're all looking at the same God. Now you tell that story in any group meeting in this country and you're likely to have people nodding their heads and saying, yeah, yeah, that's how it is. That, that, that makes sense. And, and it feels humble and it feels tolerant to say that. But I wanna tell you, that parable is anything but humble and it's anything but tolerant. When you say that parable, get this, you are saying, all the religious people are blind, but I can see. I see God for what he really is. These religious folks are stumbling in the darkness, but I, the enlightened one, can tell you the real truth. That's not humility. That's the height of arrogance. And as far as tolerance goes, I have, I have cousins who are Muslim. If I were to go to them and say, hey, did you know that you and I were worshiping the same God? They would say, no, we're not. And they'd be right. We have some beliefs in common because we share a belief in the Old Testament, but wildly different beliefs. If I were to tell them, no, 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 you're wrong. We're worshiping the same God all along, same God. I wouldn't be tolerant. I would be disrespecting them. 
So when you tell that parable, when you tell religious people, you know, you're all worshiping the same God, you're disrespecting their right to say, no, actually, no, our God is very different from the God that is worshiped in Judaism or Buddhism or Hinduism or, or Islam or, or any of the others that you want to name. And even worse for us as Christians, it directly contradicts the revealed word of God. I mean, God has gone to the trouble of revealing himself to us in great detail in his word. And we're gonna, we're gonna go to him and say, okay, I, that's all fine, but let me tell you who you really are, God. How dare we? Jesus, after all, in John 14, six said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say I am a way. He didn't say I'm one of many ways. He said, I am the way. There is only one way and that's me. And the apostles understood it. This wasn't the only time Jesus said something like that, by the way. He said things like this over and over and over again. People don't wanna crucify someone who's tolerant. They crucified Jesus because he insisted, it's me or nothing. The apostles understood this. When they went out spreading his word, they didn't walk around saying, hey, here's a new way to get to God. They said this in Acts 4.12, they said, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When you go back to the very beginning, and that's where we're gonna camp out the rest of the day, Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 9. Book of Deuteronomy, just in case you didn't know, is the last words of Moses. So Moses, you probably know the story, led the children of Israel out of slavery and then he wandered with them for 40 years in the wilderness while that first rebellious generation slowly died. So now he's an old man, 120 years old. They're at the banks of the Jordan River. Right across that river is the promised land, the land that God has said, this is going to be your inheritance and all you have to do is go claim it. And now this new generation is here. And Moses knows, God's not gonna let me cross that river. I'm gonna die on this side of the Jordan. I can't be there to guide them by the hand, so I have to tell them what to do. And here's what he says in Deuteronomy 5, 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Some of you are really, really smart. And you recognize that as the first commandment in the 10 commandments. 10 commandments are found in Exodus chapter 20. And Moses is quoting that first commandment, no other gods before me. Then he quotes the second commandment, verse eight. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. That's the second commandment. Have you ever thought about the fact that, the, that one fifth of the 10 commandments, the first two are about the exclusivity of God. They're God saying, it's me or nothing. I must be first place in your life. I will not share the throne with anything or anyone. I must be your God and your God alone, your one and only. And don't set up a, a, a temple, don't set up a, a statue, don't set up anything and make that equal to me or above me in your heart. Now look what he says next. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And this is where a lot of us say, now, now hold on. And this is not the only place God describes himself as jealous. It's mentioned often in the Old Testament. And that bothers us because that word jealousy is never used in a positive sense in our culture today. 
We hear jealousy and often we think of envy. Envy and jealousy are actually two different things, but we think of someone who says, well, I want your car, I want your house, I want your, your vacation, I want your job, I want, I want the person you married, that should be mine, not yours. That's not what God is like, clearly. Real jealousy, that's, that's the opposite, that's envy. Jealousy is not wanting what someone else has. Jealousy is not wanting to lose what you have. And, and, and so when we hear that, we think of a teenage boy or a young man who has this girlfriend that he manipulates and he dominates and he feels possessive of because he doesn't want her to talk to any other guys because she might like that other guy more than she likes me. He even gets a little upset when she's having fun with other girls because then, you know, she should be having fun with me. She wants, he wants her world to revolve around him. And if she ever breaks up with him, then he, he can't take it. He, he pursues her and he stalks her and he makes her life miserable. And that's what we think of when we think of the word jealousy. And by the way, I, I, I wish I didn't have to say this, but let me say this. If you are a girl or a young woman in this room, just understand, you will at some point encounter a boy who acts that way towards you. Just understand that is not love. That boy, that young man does not love you. That is selfishness. You have validated him. You have made him feel worthwhile because he, he felt like nothing before, but because you're in his life, he feels special. That's selfishness. That's not love. Young men, teenagers, do not treat a young woman this way. She does not belong to you. If she belongs to anyone other than God, it is her parents at this point. They have a much greater claim on her life than you. I raised a girl, I know this. You do not wanna make them angry. That will not go well for you. And when she breaks up with you and there's a 99.99% .99 chance she will, in fact, I hope she does, get over it. Now, I don't mean to make light of the pain. I've been there. I've been there. It's been a long time, but I can remember. It'll happen. It happens to all of us. It'll happen to you again. Man up. Time to be a boy. Time to be a man, not a boy. And, and love and respect this young woman enough to respect her decision. Okay? Okay, that's that. Now, is God like that? Is God jealous in that same way? And the answer is no. Again, that kind of jealousy is motivated by selfishness, by a desire to hold on to something that validates me. God, his jealousy is motivated by love. You know why I know that? Because we don't validate God. Our love for God, our worship of God, our praise to God, our devotion to him does not change his self-image in the least. One of those mysterious passages is in John chapter 17 when Jesus, the night before his crucifixion, he's praying to God and he said, Father, remember, remember the love that we shared together before the foundation of the world. He's talking about how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had this intimate communion, this joy, this, this dance of beauty and wonder and glory. They had everything they needed before one single human being was alive. You do not validate God. God did not create Adam and Eve and then say, you complete me, because he was already complete. Now, we don't understand what loving jealousy is because we never really imagine the, the term jealousy uh, associated with love, but I wanna tell you two quick stories to illustrate loving jealousy. One's a true story, one's a fictional one, all right? So the true story is this. If you've been around me long enough, you've heard me long enough, you know that I admire Tim Keller, uh, he's one of my favorite preachers and authors. In 1989, Keller planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York City, most secular city in our country, 
really tough place to start a church from scratch. And so he goes to his wife, Kathy. This is 1989. He says, listen, Kathy, I know our boys are still young. I know you're counting on me to be a good dad. And I have been up till now, but I, I, need, I, I need for you to give me three years. Three years when I'm, I'm not gonna come home on time. I'm not gonna be around as much. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna take a lot of work for me to get this church off the ground. If you'll just give me three years, I promise at the end of that, I'll be back. And she agreed. Now, at the end of the three years, he sat down with her. He said, listen, thank you for your patience. We're really, really close. If you'll just give me two more months. And she agreed. At the end of those two months, he didn't say anything. He was hoping she wouldn't notice. He just kept going to the office, coming home late at night. One night, he comes home very, very late. He opens the door to his apartment. He calls her name, and he doesn't hear anything. He doesn't hear a reply, but instead he hears the sound of grass, glass breaking on the balcony. So he goes running through the apartment, runs out onto the balcony and sees his wife sitting cross-legged on the floor of the balcony with all their wedding china spread out in front of her. And she's got a hammer in her right hand and there's pieces of broken china around her. And as he walks through the door uh, on the, uh, into the outside, into the balcony, she brings the hammer down and smashes a saucer. And he says, stop, what are you doing? And she said, this is the only way I can get your attention. You said three years, three years have come and gone. You haven't changed. You're destroying our family. You're destroying our marriage. You're destroying yourself. Uh, if there's no other way to get your attention, I just want you to know this is what you're doing to us. And with that, she brought the hammer down one more time and broke a third saucer. And he said, just, just stop. Just put the hammer down. Can we go inside? Can we talk? And they sat at the kitchen table and they talked and they agreed on some things. And, and Tim went back to being the husband, father. He should have been all along. And then he said, um, you know, here's what I don't get though. I've never seen you have a meltdown like that before. It scared me to death. And then as soon as we got up and walked into the kitchen, you were completely calm. How did you turn it off so quickly? And she said, oh, well, that wasn't actually a meltdown. I, I, I completely planned that. She said, you know, in fact, the, uh, the three saucers I smashed, they're the three saucers that don't have cups that match. Because the cups, you know, broke along the way. So I'm really, really thankful that you decided to listen to me before I had to smash something I actually wanted to keep. Now, is that righteous jealousy? I would say yes, absolutely. That's a woman who is fighting for her husband's heart and for her family's soul. That's godly jealousy. That is jealousy motivated by love. A wife who didn't love him would just say, yeah, go and keep on working. We're better off without you. Now, here's my second story. There's the movie Taken. Some of y'all remember this, right? Liam Neeson this assassin for the CIA, greatly trained, has this teenage daughter who wants to go to Europe with a friend. He says no, she goes anyway. He calls her while they're on the phone together. She is kidnapped by human traffickers. And one of them picks up the phone and holds it to his ear. And the dad in the movie says this. This is one of the great monologues at all time. I looked it up, this is the exact quote. He says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you that I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and I will kill you. And it sounds way cooler when he says it, doesn't it? 
And he does, he does exactly that. And half of the Albanians on earth get killed and his daughter gets rescued. And yeah, I, I admit, I love that movie. Now, think about Moses in the desert. Here's what he has in common with Liam Neeson in that movie. His children, so to speak, these people he's shepherded for 40 years are gonna have to go over the river into a dangerous place without him. He knows what they don't know. He knows that, in that on that side of the Jordan, there are cities, walled cities full of people that have lived there, civilizations that have existed for centuries, that worship false gods, that as soon as they come, as soon as the Israelites show up, they're going to try to convert them to their ways. He knows this is going to happen. And so one of the instructions he gives when you read the book of Deuteronomy is, don't sign a single peace treaty. Not one. I mean, you can sign treaties with nations outside the promised land all you want, but the people in that land, they will either leave or you must kill them all. And we, as modern American people, we read that, even the most devout Christians among us, we read that and we say, that bothers me. Later this year, we're gonna do a whole series on the book of Joshua about that exact invasion. And so we're gonna have to deal with this at greater length. And it's not easy, it's not an easy thing to talk about, but, but I can say this, I can say this. When you watch the movie, I'm not gonna get you to raise your hand if you saw Taken, but if, when you watch the movie, even though objectively you know that if somebody just randomly said to you, hey, wanna watch a movie about a guy who goes to Europe and kills a bunch of people? You'd probably say, no. But when you're watching the movie, you're cheering. Every time one of the bad guys goes, goes down, you're saying yes. Why? Because these are really evil guys. And they're, they're enslaving young women. And everyone that dies is one less person to do that to one young woman. And more than that, you know that this man is motivated by a love for his daughter. He is going to rescue her or die trying. And so when we read the scriptures, when we read the Old Testament, we see God say things like that. We need to understand that is the heart of a father saying, I know what's gonna happen to you if you don't destroy these people. And the bad news is they didn't listen. When you read Joshua, they, they conquered the land, but they left some of the people there. And over time, those people turned their hearts away from the Lord. And we see all through the Old Testament, again and again, God, it's as if the movie take, in the movie Taken, uh, the, the daughter keeps going back to the traffickers and the dad has to keep going and rescuing her. There's even a story, one of the most shocking stories in the Old Testament is of, of Solomon, the writer of Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, the son of David, the wisest king to ever sit a throne, and yet late in his life, he was influenced by these foreign women he had married and he started to indulge them by building shrines and temples to their gods. There's a, this valley in, just outside Jerusalem, I've been there, it's called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. When Jesus in the New Testament, whenever he uses the word hell, the word he uses is Gehenna, it's talking about that valley. In the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, that's where Solomon and, and the Israelites set up a shrine to the god Molech. You know what Molech's deal was? He craved human sacrifice. Children, actually. The Israelites had a different name for that valley at that time. They called it Topheth, which is the Hebrew word for drums. And that's because during these ceremonies, they would bang these drums loud enough that you wouldn't be able to hear the children being thrown into the flames. This is what God was trying to protect his people from. And they didn't listen. This is the jealousy of God. In fact, the, the Old Testament, the, the peak of the Old Testament is when God says, oh, you, you want life without me? You don't wanna be rescued anymore? Okay. And that's when the Israelites are carried away to a distant land for 70 years in the exile. 
And that's our God. He will rescue us unless we don't wanna be rescued. Now you may say, okay, what does that have to do with me? Here's what it has to do with you. Our God is jealous for you. And that means he must be first in your life. That means he will not tolerate competition. He wants all other potential gods put in their proper place. And I'm not just talking about Allah. I'm not just talking about Buddha. I'm not just talking about the thousands of gods in the Hindu pantheon. I'm talking about your money. I'm talking about your desire for that perfect uh, romantic and sexual relationship. I'm talking about your, your desire for comfort and pleasure. I'm talking about your favorite hobby. I'm talking about your political persuasion. I'm talking about your job. I'm talking even about your family. All the things you love, and, and all those things are good in their own sense. But if any of those things becomes first in your heart, the jealous God will not have it. And sometimes, sometimes he's like Kathy Keller, and he, he has to break some things to get through to you. And that leaves you and me with a choice. So we can either resent the jealousy of our father and we can say, okay, listen, I'm old enough and, and wise enough to know what's good for me. And if I wanna base my life on my family or on my political persuasion or on my career or on my, my money or my desires, my dreams, whatever, I can do that. And God, if you really love me, you'll support me in this. If we make that choice, and by the way, that's a choice every Christian at some point drifts off into. Many of us for many, many years. If we make that choice, it's not gonna go well for us. We're going to be desperately unhappy. Our idols have a way of, of promising way more than they can deliver. And we experience pain and hardship. But on the other hand, on the other hand, we can embrace the righteous, loving jealousy of our father. We can admit that we don't want a spouse who's not willing to fight for us. We don't want a father who isn't willing to rescue us. We can look at our lives and we can be honest and say, God, I gotta tell you, this thing that I have in my life, in my heart, it's too important to me. So, so help me to put it back where it belongs because I want you to be in the, on the throne, you and you alone. I want you to wear the, wear the crown. I want you to be my king. I, I want everything else to fall in line beneath it. I wanna love my family, but I wanna love them as a way of loving you. I wanna, I wanna be good at my job, but I wanna be good at my job as a way of glorifying you. I, I don't want anything else to be number one to me except you. Some of you need to make that decision today. Some of you need to be honest with yourselves today. And I have to tell you, it can't just be today. This is an everyday decision. This is a waking up in the morning and saying, Lord, whatever I do, whatever I say, I want you to be in charge. I want you to be king. Because our heart starts to drift because we're fickle by nature and we'll chase after other lovers if we don't renew our commitment to him each day. So where are you right now? What's on the throne of your heart? If I talk to your, your spouse, if I talk to your parents, if I talk to your siblings, if I talk to your close friends, would they say to me, oh yeah, she goes to church every Sunday, but you know what's really important to her is the way others think of her. She needs to be liked. Or, or would they say, yeah, he, he's definitely a Christian. He believes in Jesus, but you know, what's most important to him is, is making money and being successful, and, and that's what it's all about. Or would they say, without question, the king of his life is Jesus Christ. Everything he does is based on that. Everything she's about is based on her devotion to him. 
See, our story is better than the one in Taken, as much as I enjoy that movie. When we were swept away by our false gods, our father, just like the father in that story, didn't sit idly by, but unlike him, he didn't just cross an ocean, he crossed time and space. He became a man named Jesus. And Jesus came into the world on a rescue mission that's different than the one in the movie. He couldn't just kill the bad guys. You know why? Because we were the bad guys. And he had to take our punishment so we could go free. He took our pain so we could be rescued. And then three days later, rose from the dead, conquered death forever. So if you're ever really, really curious, why should I trust this God? Why should I give him first place in my life? That's why, the cross and the empty tomb. That's all you need to know. Someone who would do that for you and who can do that for you is worthy of being your one and only. And no one else ever will be.